Morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Brian, what are you doing back there? I got Brian over here. I got Mark over here on this side this week, right? What's going on? It's craziness. I will just say, if you see our kids come up and you leave, if you have not spent some time, especially back with the whatever grade I teach with my wife, I don't even know what grades they are, right? But you want to talk about true joy, um, spend an hour um, back there with, with our kids. Um, last week we were back there, um, we were talking about um, the death of Jesus, um, the death of Jesus, and, and kids were spot on. I mean, they, they knew it, they understood it. They know what's going on, uh, which was just really, really encouraging to see. So, um, you know, people ask me, like, they're like, do you get nervous to get up there? And I always kind of say, well, no, I'm not really nervous, but I really kind of am. Um, but it's not really come out from a nervousness of, like, being afraid to be up in front of people that, that, that talk and share um, as I'm talking and sharing, but more out of a nervousness that like, when you really think about the fact that we have the ability to look at God's word, right? It's just a huge responsibility. And, and then fear kind of creeps in, like, what if I'm not clear? Uh, and then just trusting in the spirit that I am. But when you spend the whole, you know, week kind of laboring over like eight to nine verses, and it makes perfectly clear sense to you in your mind, right? Then the desire of my heart is that that same clarity would come across today. Does that make sense? Even though really it's out of my hands. It's out of my hands. I, just, I have to be obedient. Um, and you guys know whenever I teach you, um, there's always that female perspective because everything is kind of co-written with Stephanie. We kind of co-write and, and work through stuff during the week. So I always say that like, if, especially for the females out there, if you're like, wow, Kevin really just seems to get like females. Uh, no, Kevin does not at all. Kevin has his wife directly helping him and advising him in the planning of the sermon. So um, my kids would testify to that. So um, in Acts, we've been in the book of Acts since the beginning of the year, and we have seen God's promise of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in the hearts um, of people, just like Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to come. We're going to do a little bit of review today, but we're going to kind of mix it up within the story um, we've seen how the Holy Spirit empowered people with boldness and with special gifts. Um, and that there was evidence of the signs and the wonders that were being performed um, by the disciples in the name of Jesus. That's really what it's all about. And today we're going to continue a story that we started a few weeks ago, um, where we're looking at a time when the disciples actually performed a miracle. Um, in Acts chapter 3, um, it opens with Peter and John on their way to the temple. On the way to the temple, they run into a lame man, a beggar who's there at the gate. And um, Peter heals that man in the name of Jesus. And that causes the man to, to cause a scene because he's leaping and shouting um, praises to God. Um, and I think sometimes when we read stories, if you've been here when Brian preached about that story where this man's healed, I think sometimes, um, I know me personally, whenever we read about things like that happening in the Bible, that sometimes we maybe approach it a little disconnected and maybe even uh, wondering if, like, can things like this that we read in the Bible actually happen today? Um, and to me, it took me back to a time where I was sitting in a church service years ago, um, and some youth were sharing about an experience that they had had where they had been on a mission trip. And they had been out of the country in another country, 
uh, working with an organization, ministering to people on the street, and, and they started sharing about their, their firsthand experiences that they shared about seeing these miraculous signs and wonders like we've been looking at here in the book of Acts. They actually witnessed events like that happening. And I remember sitting there, and I even remember that day, like, for me personally, like a sense of doubt kind of creeping in. Like, oh, man, really? Really? I mean, they're like 17 years old. Maybe, maybe they're kind of like budging it a little bit, you know what I mean? And I remember the, the, the pastor at the time of the church we were going to was a man named David Schooler, um, who was just incredible. And, and he stood up after these uh, youth shared these stories of these miraculous signs and wonders, and, and he basically said, shame on us. He sensed it. He sensed in the room that there was, a, there was an unbelief of people questioning and kind of doubting what these young people were sharing. And, and, and clearly took me back to the, to the idea that the same God who enabled ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the Bible is just as powerful, just as available today as he was back then. It's the same God. And we have that promise in knowing that he is the same yesterday, he's the same today, he's the same tomorrow, and he will be the same forever. So when we read these stories in the Bible, we can expect and should understand that these same things can actually happen in the year 2018. Today we're going to continue our study of this event in which God empowered ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and in which the people who witnessed this event firsthand are deeply, deeply affected by it, and that they cannot deny what they've seen and heard. It's going to be very impactful. In this situation, we just kind of started to review. Peter and John have just healed this lame beggar. A crowd gathers, and Peter preaches a sermon and proclaims the name of Jesus. The temple police come and arrest them. Even though Peter and John were arrested, God uses this as an opportunity to add to the number of those following Christ. Peter and John are put in jail, and they're actually brought before the Supreme Court, the Jewish leaders, the highest court in the land, the next morning. And, preacher in, and, and Peter, in this case, preaches his third sermon that he's preached in Acts. In this sermon, Peter proclaims the name of Jesus, and as Brian talked about last week, he proclaims the name of Jesus, which ticks off the religious leaders. They are not happy about this at all. So today we're going to focus on the conclusion kind of of this story, part of it, um, and find out what happens to Peter and John now that they've healed the man, they've been brought before the, the court, and, and they are in the courtroom with the Jewish leaders at the time that are really ticked off at them. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22 is our text today. Now when they saw the boldness, they being the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed, the standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council... They, the religious leaders, conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
So they called them, Peter and John, and charged them to speak or teach, to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God is up to you. You must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we even have the ability to open up your word to this morning and how like a piece of a story that you have put in there um, speaks in so many ways to us. Uh, we're just, we're thankful for your clarity. We're thankful that you give us uh, so many examples in your word that we can learn from and that we can apply with, to our lives on a daily basis. In Christ's name, amen. So this last, you know, those last couple of weeks is, as we kind of dug into this story, um, what kind of jumped out to us, because there's a lot here. We could, we could probably preach for three weeks on just the events that are happening in this passage. Um, but one thing that kind of jumped out to us was the evidence of Peter and John's genuine close relationship with God in all three of his persons, um, which is unique. Um, I'm teaching Christianity right now in my seventh grade classroom. Last week, I introduced the Trinity. Okay, yeah, yeah, try that. Try to explain something you can't explain to 13-year-olds, okay? Um, but I do think that God gives us glimpses of how the Trinity kind of operates in his word to where we can get a small picture of what's really going on, even though we're totally clueless. And in this case, I think Peter and John's genuine close relationship with God, being in relationship with God the Father, with God the Son, and with God the Spirit is, is very, very, very evident. So today that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to focus on some of the effects of what happens whenever we are in relationship with God, all of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So first, let's take a look at when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to do things that might seem impossible. Let's remind ourselves in this story why Peter and John are actually in the position in the courtroom that they're in, right? They've healed a guy, right? They've healed an individual that was unable to walk, and they haven't actually healed him. That actually was through the power given to them by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul outlines the gifts of the Spirit, where he says in verses 7 and 9, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And as I hop down there, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another workings of miracles. The only way that Peter and John have actually been able to perform this miracle is through their relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't just stop there in this passage because we see Peter and John demonstrate incredible, incredible boldness. And the question we're going to ask ourselves today is, where does this boldness come from? We see, we see the evidence of this boldness in our text today in verse 13, where it says, now they, the religious, excuse me, the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John. 
So it is very evident to the religious leaders in the courtroom that Peter and John have a boldness about them. So the word boldness here, the Greek word boldness is actually the word parousia, which is not just a little boldness. It is free and fearless confidence. It is spirit-inspired confidence, courage to, the courage to speak in spite of danger or threat. So it's not just like a little bit of self-confidence we're talking about here. We're talking about being able to be bold and confident whenever you know that you are in danger. So the question here is, where does this boldness that Peter and John have come from? So what I want to do is just hop back. I'm not going to re-preach Brian's sermon, okay? But I want to hop back because what Brian shared last week is actually the, where the boldness comes from, okay? Acts chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. They brought in the disciples and demanded, By what power and in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of, the peop- of our people, Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. We see in verse 8 that this boldness with Peter is coming from the Holy Spirit. Because it says, why? He was what? He was filled with the Spirit. Okay? For me, this isn't just a little bit of boldness. Um, I think that this is um, like a a few good men moment. You know what I mean? This is like you want the truth, right? Like like you can't handle the truth. Um, And which was which is really, really, really bold. So we're not just talking about a little bit of boldness here. We're talking about like like boldness on steroids. Okay? Coming from our proof in verse 8, coming from the Holy Spirit. Coming from the Holy Spirit. So not only do we see the results of Peter and John being in relationship with God the Spirit, but in our passage today, we also see the effects of the, them being in relationship with God the Son, with Jesus Christ. When we spend time with Jesus, it is going to be obvious in our words and our actions. And in this case, looking at our passage, verse 13, right, we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The religious leaders recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, there's two trains of thought here. The first is, maybe they actually physically, like facial recognition, realized, hey, I think these are some of the guys that have been with Jesus, right? And they probably did. However, I also think here that it's likely that they're recognizing that they've been with Jesus because of how they're speaking and how they're acting. And this shouldn't really come as a surprise to us because Jesus had been, I mean, the disciples have been under the direct leadership of Jesus for years. For years, they've been walking with him and talking with him and watching him. In 1 John, John actually speaks of this. What I, and and maybe, you're, maybe you'll catch on to this today, but what I think is really cool is a lot of the passages that back up what we're talking today come from the book of Peter and come from the book of John, which are what? Are two characters in this story that are there. But for, in 1 John, John 
reflecting back on walking with Jesus and all these events we're talking about says what? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, John's like, I have been with Jesus. I have walked with him. I've listened to him. I've touched him. Even though that the, the disciples here, Peter and John, are perceived as being uneducated by the religious leaders, they have a knowledge way beyond formal training. They've not been to rabbi school, right? A lot of these Jewish leaders in this courtroom have been to school. They were educated. Peter and John were fishermen, right? We're talking about average people, uneducated. But they, they could tell, the religious leaders could tell that they had been with Jesus, and they could tell by the way that they were speaking, that Jesus had taught them by words and examples, they had studied. Peter and John had studied and done their best to imitate Jesus' ways. And why'd they do this? Because he told them to, right? He told them to. In John chapter 15, we read Jesus saying, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Imitate me. Imitate me. In John chapter 13, we read the words of Christ saying, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done. Flat out just says it. Like, I'm showing you, I'm showing you who I want you to be. He goes on in the book of Luke, and Jesus says, A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. We are called to imitate Christ. Just as Peter and John are sitting there, and the religious leaders are like, I can tell that they've been with Jesus, right? We are called to do the exact same thing. And please don't take my word for it. Take the words of first, in 1 John. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's a guy that was there in the courtroom imitating, being recognized that he had been with Jesus and then later on writing in 1 John that what? All believers are to do the same. That we should walk like Christ walked. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, it's simple, but it's not so simple. How do we spend time with Jesus and get to know his ways? Like Peter and John obviously knew. First of all, we have to spend time with him, right, in his word. I think it's cool, the connection here, that, you know, Jesus is the word of God. And therefore, when we open up his word, we are spending time with him. And also praying, talking to him, communicating. I remember growing up in church, and I remember, like, it seemed like every kid's lesson um, that we kind of went through um, always came back to, like, read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. And I always remember as a kid thinking like, you know what, that's kind of that's crap. I mean, really, that's it. There's got to be a more complex formula, right, to actually be in community with the creator of the universe. Um, and as I've grown older and we, you, know, you, kinda, you, you study more and you realize that it really, um, it really is that simple. But, but, but not so much, not so much. When we spend time with Jesus... When we spend time with Jesus, it is, it's going to be obvious to other people 
and because we're going to imitate his words and his actions. And this is exactly what happens to us in other relationships in our lives, right? If you hang out with someone that gossips, what do you do? You start to gossip. If you hang out with somebody or other people that are making fun of people a lot, what do you do? You start making fun of other people. And that's in positive ways too. If you hang out with people that encourage others and you spend a lot of intimate time with them, then you begin maybe becoming more of an encouraging person. So it shouldn't really surprise us that to be imitate Jesus, we have to hang out with him. Just like when we hang out with people, we become them or like them. When we hang out with Jesus, we become like him. Now, like I said, this seems simple because, hey, just read your Bible, get in God's word, understand who Jesus is, and then spend time praying and talking to him. But it's really not so simple because in our sinful nature, commitment to anybody but ourselves is very difficult. Right? I'm really good at being committed myself. Right? It's really hard for me whenever I have to be committed to, to someone else above, my own, above me above me. Peter and John had spent time with Jesus. They had spent a whole lot of time with Jesus. They had also witnessed his words and his actions in person and could not, before the courtroom, they could not deny who he was. They were fully convinced, fully convinced, which goes into that boldness piece as well, right? We can't be bold about something we're not fully convinced about, but they knew it. They knew it because they had spent time with him. This undeniable truth, based on Peter and John's intimate relationship with Jesus, along with, as we've already talked about, the filling of the Holy Spirit in them, gave them a boldness that not only caught the attention of others, but left the religious leaders baffled, right? Like, what do we do with these guys? Like, what in the world do we do with these guys? So we've seen the Holy Spirit piece. We've seen the Jesus piece. We also see evidence of Peter and John's intimate relationship with the Father, with God the Father. In this situation, we see two different things happen here um, when we are committed to the Father and his ways. The first one is when we are committed to God the Father, there is going to be opposition. And we see that opposition in this story in our text, verses 14 through 18. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So that's a little confusing. I just told you that we're going to face opposition, but then it says what? They had nothing to say in opposition. They are going to oppose the message of Peter and John here. But the whole fact that the guy's standing there, they're like, oh my gosh, we can't deny that. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everyone has seen it. What do we do with them? And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. There's your opposition, right? Keep your mouth shut. Stop talking about Jesus. This shouldn't surprise us. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus warns the disciples ahead of time that they're going to face opposition when they follow God's ways. He says in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
you are going to face opposition. Can we control that? Can we control opposition? We have absolutely zero control over opposition in our lives. What we do have control over is how we choose to respond to that opposition. And in this case, we see a clear response. Let's talk about Peter, right? Peter comes across, I mean, Peter numerous times comes into opposition and he responds to it. And actually he responds to it a lot of the times the way that I typically respond to opposition. All right, let's talk about this because this is a struggle for him. Brian mentioned a couple weeks ago when Jesus is arrested in the garden, he cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest, right? Pulls out a sword. Let's go to battle. Then after Jesus is arrested, he actually denies that he knows Jesus three times because he's afraid. That's how he responds. But in this case, don't we see a very different Peter? This is the guy that just a few chapters back is denying Christ and, uh, and, and cutting off people's ears and, and ready to go to battle. But we see here that he shows a clear, a very clear allegiance to the Father and a commitment to God, a commitment to God. In our text today, verses 19 through 20, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Let me read that again, right? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. How gutsy is that, right? That's like a mic drop, you understand? That's like, boom, done, done. Looking at this story, what are some things we could learn to apply to our lives as far as when we face opposition? Because like we said, Jesus promised it, it is coming, right? There are times in our life we have that opposition and we must choose how to respond. First, when facing opposition, we have to have the right attitudes and pure motives. And we see that with Peter here. We see that with Peter here. Um, first Peter, Peter, saying himself later on, says, do not repay evil for, revi for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. All right? That's a hard one for me. Whenever some, when I come in opposition with somebody, right, and I'm like evils, you know, and somebody's coming at me, my gut reaction is, but I'm ready to go, right? And Peter's saying here in this verse, do not repay evil for evil, but instead what? Have the right attitude and pure motives. And we can see in our story that Peter and John do have the right attitude and they have pure motives. They're like, we can't deny that this has happened. Another thing that we need to remember when facing opposition is that we are to have sure convictions and clear allegiance. Again, I'll go to a verse in 1 Peter that says, But in your hearts, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Isn't that what Peter's doing in the courtroom here? Right? Isn't he preparing a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you? Okay. Now, I think Peter, I would have liked to have asked him, like when he wrote, yet yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. 
Like, what was his attitude when he wrote those words? Because I'm not totally sure in our text today that Peter's response is full of total gentleness and respect, right? Because he's like, let me make it clear to you, right? Um, But he is respectful, but he is also passionate and convinced. So I think a lot of the times we think like, oh, I can't say something with conviction because I really believe it and I know it to be true because it might come across disrespectful. But we are called to be respectful, but we are also called to be clear of our convictions and our allegiance. When facing opposition, another thing we need to remember, like we see in here, is to speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Another thing I think that we can learn from this when facing opposition in our response to that is realizing that when people oppose us, and they will, they're going to come and and they're going to not understand, is realizing that it might just be that they don't see it. It might just be spiritual blindness. And we shouldn't take it personally. A lot of times when people oppose us, they just don't see it. It's not that they're like out to get us. It's not like we should take that personally. And we see evidence in this in Paul's words when he's writing to the church in in Corinth when he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sometimes people just don't see it. It's not that they're necessarily out to get us, and we shouldn't take it necessarily personally. Instead, it really should break our hearts, and we should be praying for those people. The last thing that we need to respond with whenever we are faced with opposition is to pray for boldness. And I'm not going to say any more about that topic because Brian's going to be preaching on that baby next week, right? Okay, but we are called to, to respond in a way of praying for boldness. So we've seen the Holy Spirit, right, evident in Peter and John um, in this courtroom. We have seen um, evidence that they have walked with and they have been with Christ in this this story. And now we can see that they are committed to the Father, correct? And we know they're committed to the Father because they're facing opposition. However, we're not going to leave it at that when it comes to being committed to the Father because we can also see the good in that. When they are committed to the Father... God is glorified. In our text, verses 21 and 22 say, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. But the man of whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Peter and John's commitment is clear. And because their commitment is clear, God is glorified. God is glorified. We see other examples of this in the Bible, don't we? We can go to Daniel chapter 3, where we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And their obedience, their commitment to the Father leads to what? The king of Babylon honoring God. We can see in Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas are in jail, but they're committed to the Father. And what happens? The jailer is actually saved. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians where he writes to the church of Corinth and says, as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ.
Jesus also encourages his followers in the same way, that God will be glorified whenever we are committed to him. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it will give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? And give glory to the Father who is in heaven. That's what it's all about in the end here, right? God was glorified. God was glorified because of Peter and John's commitment to God the Father. So I want to share with you a a video, about six minutes. Uh, Carissa actually shared this on Facebook. I'm not a Facebook person, but Stephanie is, and she saw it, and we kind of watched it, and we were like, oh my gosh, that's like the perfect way to like kind of target in on a story that happened thousands of years ago and how the same kind of story can happen today. It was the morning of September 20th, 2006. Jeff Markin recalls heading for work as usual. What he doesn't remember is driving himself to the hospital. He had called his boss and told him he didn't feel well. His boss was concerned and convinced Jeff to go to the emergency room. Somehow Jeff made it. As he got there, he collapsed. Dr. Chauncey Crandall was doing rounds in the intensive care unit that morning. An alert call came over the PA system uh, that someone had arrived at the hospital with a massive, deadly heart attack. And then a second call uh, went out over the PA system and specifically asked for me because I was the cardiologist on that day. When I arrived there, it was like a war zone. It was like being in battle. It was chaos. Everyone there fighting to keep this man alive. The ER staff worked on Jeff for 40 minutes. They shocked him a dozen times. Despite their efforts, there was no response. Once Dr. Crandall decided the team had done everything possible, he called the time of death. While a nurse prepared Jeff's body for the morgue, Dr. Crandall updated the charts. Well, as soon as my note was completed, I walked out through the door to this emergency room. I heard this voice say, turn around and pray for that man. And I wanted to ignore that voice because I said to myself, how can I pray for that man? He's dead, he's gone. There's no life in him. So I kept walking and the voice came back again. And the voice said, turn around and pray for that man. And I stopped and I thought to myself, I need to honor the Lord. So I turned around at the doorway and I walked to the side of the body and the nurse was on the other side of the body and she's looking at me like, what are you doing? Why are you here? And I stood there next to that corpse and I opened my mouth and these words came out. Father God, I cry out for this man's soul. If he does not know you, as his Lord and Savior, Father, raise him from the dead now in Jesus' name. I remember staring at bright lights and they were swirling around. Out of those uh, bright lights uh, came an image and he told me that he was there to look over me and make sure that everything was gonna be fine. And the other doctor walked in the room and I pointed to him, I said, shock this man 
one more time. And he looked at me, he said, Dr. Crandall, we can't shock him. He's dead, there's no life in him. He's gone. And I said, for me, shock him one more time. And that doctor, out of respect and honor for me, went over to that body with those defibrillator paddles and put his paddles on that patient and shocked him, shocked Jeff. And immediately an instant heartbeat came back. Instant, perfect, regular, which we'd never seen before. And the nurse screamed, what have you done? And this perfect heartbeat came back. And then suddenly, this abdomen started moving and started breathing. And then a couple moments later, the fingers started twitching. They immediately moved Jeff to the intensive care unit. Three days later, Jeff woke up with no evidence of brain or organ damage. Once I, I woke up, my daughter Jillian was there, and that's when she told me what had happened. When I came in Monday morning, Jeff was sitting up in bed. And I said, where, where were you that day that I prayed for you in the emergency room? And he said, Dr. Crandall, I was in total darkness. And I was so disappointed. And I said, Jeff, what were you disappointed about? He said, I was alone for eternity. He asked me at that time if I was willing to accept God, my life, and into my heart. I just opened my arms and accepted God. Uh, it was just a very emotional time. I, you know, I remember you know, crying <laughs> in his arms. Today, Jeff is back at work and gets regular checkups with Dr. Crandall. He still has no heart problems or residual complications from his brush with death. To know what I had gone through and uh, to be so fortunate, and uh, that's been part of, I guess, my uh, daily battle is why me? Why have I been <clears throat> so fortunate uh, to have God shine on me? Uh, I guess a second time. This day that I prayed for Jeff was a day of very little faith. It wasn't one of my big God days. And when I walked into that emergency room, to tell you the truth, I didn't want to stay and pray because I was so much in a rush with my work. But I prayed. And I didn't have a lot of faith backing that prayer up that day. But the Lord asked me to do it, so I honored the Lord and prayed. And that's all we need, just a spark of faith like that mustard seed. Miracles are real, and they're real today. So when we, when we hear a story like that, right? It, it's pretty evident to us that the same God that was working miracles back in Acts is the same God that we're serving today. And when we see this doctor, right, we see a boldness, don't we? The ability to go into a room with your peers that might think you're totally wacky by saying, shock this guy that's been dead 40 minutes again, right? And the risk that you take with that. But we definitely see in this doctor, too, an evidence that what? There's a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? That he, that he is imitating Jesus in those ways. And in the end, what happens? 
God is glorified. God is glorified. Jeff, the guy on the table, right? That's us. And as we've looked at this miracle through this, these last three weeks, I think this is our third week on this one miracle, right? What is the real miracle? Is the real miracle the guy walking? Is the real miracle here that Jeff is like breathing? Or is the real miracle the fact that now Jeff has a relationship with Jesus Christ? Right? And that all of us, all of us are a screwed up mess. Right? We're the individuals laying on that table dead. And the only way, we bring nothing to the table, right? We're totally dead. But the true miracle here, whenever you read it, when you see a story like this, isn't this, I mean, it, obviously he's not breathing and he's breathing. That is miraculous. I think sometimes we get really caught up in that though and we fail to realize that the bigger, the bigger miracle as well is the fact that a man who did not know Jesus Christ, right, that was separated from God through Jesus Christ has the ability to be in relationship with God, bringing nothing to the table, and being a total screwed up mess. And that is exactly what we are. We're a mess. But thank goodness we have a God that's loved us so much that he sent Christ to die from us. To die, Christ to die for us so that we can have forgiveness and that we can have hope and that we can live in a way we have his word so we can read it. And just like Peter and John imitated Jesus because they had been with him, we have that same ability to be with Jesus on a daily basis and imitate him. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for today, and I, I thank you for this story and for, for individuals in history like Peter and John and, and, and how cool it will be someday to meet these individuals in eternity and be able to be like, man, I read about the time that you like laid it down in front of those Jewish leaders and, and just said it like it was. And that was so cool. And how that they will respond with something like, wasn't me. Wasn't me. It was the power of the Holy Spirit working in me because of the things that I had seen and witnessed and heard from the mouth of Jesus himself. I knew, I knew in my heart that it was true. And I just wanted to bring God glory. And we pray, God, that that would be us. We pray that we, a broken mess, with nothing on the table to give to you of any worth at all other than ourselves, that we would want to bring you glory by following you on a daily basis, by imitating your son, by reading his word and by praying, and by realizing that the same power that was available to the disciples in this story through the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us today. In Christ's name, amen.